We'll be continuing today in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We looked at the first six verses of chapter 10 last week of 2 Corinthians. And we want to look this morning, focus on just one phrase in that, the idea of taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Uh, it's a difficult phrase to fit in its context. So we were looking at last week. In the context here, it's right in the middle of a block about dealing with his adversaries who have puffed up language and superior intellects in their mind and superior language and arguing skills and were leading the people astray. So how to fit this in with that was something that was a little complicated. Uh, John Calvin seems to take one of the more popular opinions, and that is that Paul is shifting here. He's been talking about the weapons of warfare we're using against the enemy. And now he is looking at the preparations we as soldiers of the cross must take to be able to participate in the war. And so he looks at this really as being about our thoughts, the believers, the Christians. On the other hand, some people find that a bit strained. It's and they see it more as about our overcoming the lofty but wrong ideas of our adversaries by exposing them with scriptures. And in that mind, we might think of Vody's book on expository apologetics that we were going through Sunday afternoon, that taking their thoughts captive is overcoming their thoughts and overcoming their mistakes and showing them to them what scripture really says and what the truth really is. And then there are some, and I would probably fall into this last category a little more, Yes, that's correct, but the idea that every thought must be made captive, the word every there carries with it the idea of uh, every kind, every type, as well as every one, each one. And so we see it really is all thoughts, both theirs and ours, in which case we would think of he's referring to both of them, that we need to bring the thinking of ourselves and the world into captivity to God and to his commandments and the obedience of Christ, that we might defeat their arguments, both through essentially our lifestyle as well as through our, our defense of the faith. And so we'll look at that in more detail as we go through the passage this morning. First, let us read those six verses. I, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience, even your obedience, when your obedience is complete. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, there are many things we can give to thought about taking our thoughts.
captive, uh, taking our accusers and opponents' thoughts captive, putting them all under the obedience of Christ. We pray, Lord, that as we consider these things, you'll help us to glean the wonderful things you have for us, that we might know and understand and grow in our faith. So, looking at verse 5, we're just going to look at that phrase, but I'll be bouncing around to the rest of that section that we used, that we looked at last week as needed. The first thing we need to think about is our thoughts. What is he referring to in our thoughts? Well, the word there has a couple of meanings that are common throughout the scripture. And the first meaning of which is what we perceive, our perception, and what we think, particularly concerning those things. And I would call that the input to our life, when we think about it at a very basic level. The second meaning has to do with the thoughts and purposes and ideas and designs we have. So if we think about, first of all, what is perceived, our perception, it's what we see, what we hear, what we read, and what we feel, both physically and emotionally. It's about those things. And so, yes, TV, books, friends, radio, music, whatever, they come into us and they have an influence on us. Nobody who listens to music can deny that. If you listen to a beautiful classical piece that's relaxing, you feel relaxed. If the commercial comes on and it gets some head-banging modern rock kind of music, we get fired up and emotionally charged. Usually wanted to smash whatever's making the noise, but if you're older. Uh, you know, there's an emotional response that comes from that. The same with TV. We had to take, we went to the doctor and we were sitting with the two kids in the waiting room and they had a soap opera on. And it was about magic and immorality. Those were the two things. The whole four hours we sat there, we listened to, I think it was the same soap opera the whole time. One after another after another. And I'm just like, ugh. And every once in a while when the children go, what's that about? I have to stop what I'm doing and explain to them. Yeah, don't, don't believe in such nonsense. Don't listen to such evil. As Paul says, bad company ruins good morals. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 through 34. He's talking to the same people. When I was in the IT world, we said, garbage in, garbage out. If you bring junk in, that's what pollutes you. If you give the computer bad information, no matter how good the program is, it's going to give you a bad answer. Well, the same in our heart. You know, if that's what we're pulling into our heart, we're going to poison ourselves. Or if it's good stuff, you know, that which we bring into our heart will lift us and bring us nearer to God. So it's important what thoughts, what perceptions we have, the things that come in, the things we hear make us think about it. And how we think about it is important. The second meaning of the word is our purpose, our idea, our design, our plan, if you want. The meditations of the heart. The world thinks in its hearts that it's good, that the world is good, that everybody's good. 
except those who turn themselves to evil, but they have to make the choice. I remember being taught that in public school, that man is basically good and children have to learn how to do wrong. And even as a child, I laughed. But anybody who's had children or has to deal with children knows full well, leave them to their own devices, they become more and more evil, more and more self-centered, more and more hateful and destructive, because that's where they are. The Christian believes what God's word says. And Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And thus he sent the flood. Jesus kind of reiterates the idea and draws our idea back to the heart. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, Matthew 15, 19. You notice out of our thinking, out of the things we meditate upon and hold and treasure in our heart, that all of the sin comes from. This word includes really all of the designs and all of the plans of the heart. And our plans also tend towards evil. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the greedy one for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Psalm 10, 3 and 4. Now, man's thoughts are important. And when he says the taking of thoughts captive in our passage, take every thought captive to obey Christ, he's talking about our thought life, and our thought life really matters to God. We've been learning in the book of Ecclesiastes about the meaning of life, and it, the conclusion we've read several times, and I want to remind us of that. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of God. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. What is every secret thing? Well, the things nobody knows but us, the things of our heart. God sees the heart. He evaluates the heart. He judges the heart. And we will give an answer for what is in our heart to him. The secrets of our thought life will be judged So think as the psalmist does, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, Psalm 19:14. A wonderful verse to commit to memory and to think about when we're thinking bad things. The psalmist wants his thought life to be pleasing to God because God will judge them. It's going to be humiliating enough to be judged for what we did and what we said, even every careless word, but it includes, the judgment includes right down to our thought life that nobody knows. You know, what we're thinking about our friend, our neighbor, our spouse, our child. Those things are all going to come up before God. And we'll give an answer for all of it. So we really need to understand how significant our thoughts are in God's life. Or in God, our thoughts are in our life with God. Now, the thoughts in mind here, I think, are most explicitly the thoughts against the knowledge of God. Well, the knowledge of Christ, there in verse 5. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's the starting point for what he's talking about. Paul writes, I say this in order that no one will delude you with plausible arguments. He writes to the Colossians. Colossians 2, 4. 
they're being deluded or deceived by, by the sophistry of the scholastics, their skill in Greek and Roman uh, philosophical rhetoric. And he sees that they're being led astray by this. Their arguments sound plausible. Paul denies that he uses such tricks. He wrote to Corinthians, and when I was when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He came, yes, in the wisdom and power of God, but not in the wisdom of the godless philosophers, not in the wisdom of the world that James talks about in James 3, 13 through 16, calling it demonic. Now, really, I think the church would be a better place if more theologians really thought about what God says about worldly wisdom. They want to follow the wisdom of Aristotle, the wisdom of Socrates, and they want to have the rhetoric and the arguments used by them and developed by them. In fact, we were forced to memorize some of their proofs that there might be some kind of God. And I'm like, ah, oh, but I would never use this because this man was a pagan, and if they go start reading Aristotle to come to his conclusions, they're going to be turning away from God. But even worse than that, all of our thinking became corrupted and darkened by sin. So even the reasonings, you know, the spiritual man cannot understand the things of the God because they're spiritually discerned. Well, even their logic is flawed. When I studied logic in college, I was also studying computer logic. And computer logic, you know, it has to be this or this is. And, you know, I'm in that kind of a mindset. And when I get to their rhetoric, I'm like, this is, this is all sophistry. Even the ancient philosophers they're going roundabout. They don't know the truth. They don't understand reality. As I became a Christian, I really understood that better. And science is the same way. I studied engineering, but when we had a science class, which was in the science was in the um, College of Liberal Arts, Arts and Sciences. Engineering was in the College of Engineering, separate by miles, because in engineering you can only use what actually is true and works. And science is all theoretical these days. Oh, but if there is no God, then maybe things evolved over millions of years, and even though it's scientifically impossible, we're going to hold that as truth because it's better than the alternative. That a God who will judge us created everything. Now, we, we have to be careful. We cannot use their arguments to come to the right conclusions because their arguments are tainted by their sin and by their willful desire to believe that up is down, that down is up, that there is no God, even though he made everything. It, it just corrupts everything. So I think that's primarily what he's writing about, is those people who are using this kind of lofty-sounding trickery to persuade them that up is down and down is up. We see that every you know, next year. We're going to be seeing it a lot. Another presidential election... There'll be a lot of sophistry, a lot of fine-sounding arguments from both sides, to be honest. Neither one of them politicians just can't seem to tell the truth no matter what side they're on. <clears throat> so anyway, when he said, I decide to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus is him and him crucified, he made a choice. Now, some people think he had no ability in, in the philosophical arguments. I would think he was raised in a Greek-controlled Greek and Roman-controlled area. He was educated under Gamaliel, one of the top 
leaders in Judaism, I'm sure he was well-versed in what they did. And that's why he says, when I, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. He's saying, I rejected all of those things, as he talks about repeatedly in 2 Corinthians as well. I was with you in meekness, weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, what does he mean by that? Probably ought to mention, yes, he did miracles, but I don't think that's what he's meaning. He's meaning the power of the word. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It is able to throw down strongholds. The power of the word is able to overcome their lofty speech and their lofty, clever misreasonings. And I think that's what he has in mind. He says, he did that in order that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but the power of God. We talked about that last week, so I won't mention it in any detail. I think the lofty things of verse 5 would include everything that is set up in opposition to the knowledge of God. All of our wise thoughts, all of the science of the world, which contradicts Scripture because they rejected Scripture, they have to come with the opposite. Even though every bit of scientific evidence points them to being wrong. All of that kind of thing, as well as the false religions and all of the attacks they have made against Christianity and the doctrine of Christianity. But also, I think it would include all of the sinful thoughts they have, any kind of sinful thought, which is really against God and his call to holiness. And so I think all of this is against the knowledge of God, and it is all what he has in mind. He talks about taking those thoughts captive. Any thought, any thinking, any reasoning, any emotional desires or confidence that what we're doing is right, if it is against the knowledge of God, it is wrong. And Paul tells us, therefore, we need to take every thought captive. Now, imagine in this passage what he's talking about. You know, we can throw down their fortifications. We can take their thoughts captive. He's talking about basically siege warfare. You know, that's the Christian life, and that's the life in this world. We're at war, and it's, it's a siege. And we need to take them captive for Christ and for truth. Now, our thinking is generally captive to something. Uh, man wants to think that his, you know, his thinking is fully independent and reason, reasoning. Uh, but the truth is, it is enslaved, it is captured by our nature at the very least. The sinful nature cannot accept the things of God, cannot understand the things of God, is at enmity with God, Scripture says. And so, from the very beginning... Our thoughts are captive to something. Now remember, the source of our thoughts is important too. They come through our senses, they come through our thinking, our reasoning. You know, I said earlier, garbage in, garbage out. Your thoughts are captured by the TV you watch, the books we read, the music we listen to, the associations we have. I've seen that sadly in the life of some of my friends, that they were running the race well, but then they got into... Oh, you know, I'm going to associating with these higher intellectual groups in Christianity, and they start to drift away from the scriptures to the wisdom of man. 
Now, even our associations, our friends, can get us into those kinds of troubles where our thinking goes bad. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Even the TV, the books, the music that we keep company with, they can lead us astray from Christ. But really, what we need to take captive is our thoughts. And I think this is, our thoughts is mankind, all of mankind's thoughts. They can be, they're captive by something. I mentioned earlier the cap, captive by our nature. If our nature is sinful, we follow our sinful nature. If our nature is redeemed and holy, we will try to follow our holy nature, but some of the old man still lives in us. When God says, when Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and sin, we're dead. I remember one of the great evangelists said, oh, God is throwing you a life buoy and while you're drowning, and all you need to do is take hold of it and draw it into you, and you'll be saved. And the answer to that came back, if we are dead in our trespasses and sin, does a dead man reach out to take it? Until he has made us alive again, until he has taken out that heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh, we cannot reach out. Man is dead in his thinking, in man's reasoning, then also is going to captivate us. If we listen to the world, it wants to entice us to enjoy the pleasures of this life, the pleasures of this world, and not God. And God gives us several warnings against that. The most memorable of them is in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, right? Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If the love of the Father is not in us, then we are not a believer, we are not saved, we are not a Christian. So what he's saying is if we love those things, we're not believers. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. In Solomon's book of Proverbs, in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 10, he writes, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And we are encouraged and enticed every day by sinners be it directly by a person or by the TV, the books, the radio, the whatever that we input to our system. It brings with us those enticements. Note, whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, it is a call to our holiness. Consider Paul's command. Now I testify and say this in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, See, all of their thinking is ultimately futile. It doesn't take them where they need to go. They are darkened in their understanding. Their minds are darkened. And their understanding is darkened. So when they have wisdom, when they have reasoning, when they put forward their Greek and Roman rhetoric, it's darkened by sin. Darkened by the hardness of their heart towards God. Says they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, to the practice of every kind of impurity. That is not how you learned in Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him 
as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belonged to your former manner of life, which is corrupted through evil desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. In true knowledge, it says elsewhere. You know, the new man has access to true knowledge that the old man did not have. When we take our desires, learn them from the unbeliever, when we learn wisdom, when we learn how to live and what to enjoy and what to do and how to get what you want. How many thousands of self-help books are written that way? But all of them are written from a point of view of people who do not know the truth. They have no knowledge, no righteousness, no holiness. He continues on... continues on in that manner in different places. But our thoughts are made captive, especially those through teachers, through false teachers, especially, and false prophets. Remember Peter said, speaking, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Second Peter 2, 18 now, these false teachers will take you if you're not confident in the, war, the Lord. You're not in his word. You don't really understand right from wrong, left from right. I remember when in the army, I was in the army and we were learning marching, you know, you know, it would be commanded right step, left step, and there'd always be somebody who'd go the wrong way and crash into people. So they had this stick with a board full of weights, probably weighed 20 or 30 pounds, that you would then carry for the rest of the marching session in your right hand. That'll help you remember which is your right from your left because you guys don't even know your right from your left. Now it gets confusing when somebody's barking orders at you. It's not in our nature. But the closer you are to that spiritually, the closer you are to not knowing your right hand from your left hand spiritually, the more easily you are deceived by these false teachers the more easily they take your thinking captive and fill your head with things that are just hard to give up. You know, think about that. Have you ever had a discussion with somebody who, who wants to really believe all of the Bible, but they were told that God saved you because you made the choice to be saved. And God doesn't override your rule, your, your, your mind. He, he, and you get that fixed in your mind. Yes, I did make a choice. I was an atheist. I made a choice to follow God. If I had never read the Bible, I could have been tricked into thinking that I was saved by my choice. But as I read the Bible and I learned that God takes out the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, puts his spirit within you, causes you to want to follow his word, then I understood when I read things about it's not of works. It wasn't my choice that saved me. It was because God transformed my heart. I therefore made that choice. And I made the choice joyfully. And willingly, because I had a new nature, and that new nature was captive of my thinking and led me to make the choice to follow God. They have the cart before the horse. But think about it. If nobody had told you those things, wouldn't you believe it? Or actually, I've known many elders who have told the story of how they became reformed by reading the Bible and how hard it was sometimes to overcome the things they were taught that were false because their thinking had been captivated by wrong, humanistic, worldly kinds of teaching that really appealed to us. You know, I am the one. 
I am better because I made the choice that appeals to our sinful nature. And until we humble ourselves and say, God is right and I am wrong. And I made that choice because God gave me the grace of a new heart. And praise the Lord that he took that heart of stone that would never have done anything but curse him, that he took it out of me and put in a heart of flesh, that he gave me a new spirit so that I can make the right choice. And so that I would make the right choice contrary to my own desires, my own earlier desires. So we need to put off that old self and that old self thinking that was captivated by the world, captivated by sinful teachers, captivated by what we learned and were told. These false teachers really do a lot of damage. Paul goes on to say that about their, their ability to capture our hearts. Anyone who gives heed to their evil teachings, he tells Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, we're talking about the teaching of Scripture that was still being written when Paul wrote that. He says he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and a constant friction among people who are of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. A very powerful statement, but he's talking about the hearts of these false teachers and basically what they're teaching. And he writes to Titus that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The circumcision party or sect was those who were saying you had to be circumcised to be saved and obey the law of Moses. He writes, they must be silenced for they're upsetting whole families by their teaching. Now, the better translation for that, it's not upsetting, it's subverting is what the word means. Literally, it's subverting. They are subverting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, Titus 1, 10 and 11. You know, they are capturing the thoughts of people through their deceptive teaching, and they are subverting the hearts of people by taking their thoughts captive to sinful teachings and false teachings. And so our heart is easily captured by the enemy. And that's the way warfare goes, right? Each side wants to copy, capture the enemy. And the best they can, the most they want to hope for is they can convert them to their side and they'll become soldiers for the cross or soldiers for Satan. And that's the last one I want to mention. We can be captured. Our thoughts can be captured by the devil. And you might say, no, that's not real. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, meaning those without the spirit of God cannot receive the things of God. The, spirit, the gospel is a spiritual matter. They can't understand it. He goes on to say, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded 
the minds of unbelievers. Now, minds here is our word, thoughts. Thoughts is often translated as mind, depending on how it's used in the sentence, because the word mind and thoughts are different in English, but they can be the same word in Greek. So he has blinded the thoughts of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds the mind, blinds the thoughts of those who do not believe. They would rather listen to him than listen to the truth from God. What about believers? You say, oh, Satan has no power over the believer. Really? Paul writes these very same Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 3 of 2 Corinthians. But I am afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, same word here, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Yes, our thoughts can be deceived. Just as the serpent deceived Eve, so he can deceive us. Through false teachers in the case here of Second Corinthians, to lead us astray from a pure devotion to Christ. Remember Solomon and all his greatness and all his riches and all his wisdom and writing you know, the book of Ecclesiastes about nothing in the world has value unless it is for God. What a great and wonderful and wise man. What happened to him in the end? Why was his kingdom torn asunder by his children, by his child? Because his thoughts were no longer purely for God. He became divided. That's the same idea here. He was led aside from a pure devotion to God and corrupted his devotion to God by following other gods with his wives. Now that is the spiritual warfare that is going on. Satan wants us to corrupt just a little bit. If I can just get you to compromise on one thing, if I can get you, just get you to be tempted to live in sin in one area of your life, all the holiness matters not. And people will see that one thing, even though you don't think they do. And God's name will be blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. It's horrible, but it's real. In our spiritual war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, all thoughts need to be captured for God. By God's side, by God in his kingdom and his wisdom and his word. In the context, this is really explicitly about the thoughts of those who are opposing the work of God. Paul's adversary in Corinth, the, the scholastics, both the unbelieving Jews and the unbelieving Gentiles who were tainted by scholasticism, using the tools of scholasticism to lead people away from the pure thinking of God in Christ. And they were taking them captive through their false teaching, but how then would they be made captive to obey Christ? Because that's in our context what it says. Well, you're only halfway through and I've used up almost all my time. <laughs> we read that in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15. Now that's Vodi's theme verse for the book we're doing after lunch, but expository apologetics. 
But also think about it. You know, we're destroying their wrong arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. How do we do this? Well, with the word of God. And we do it by giving an answer to their wrong arguments. So how are we taking thought, their captive, their thoughts? You know, they're putting forward these thoughts that people are receiving and listening to. Well, we're refuting those thoughts and answering them with scripture. Now, that's not exactly what Peter was talking about, but it's the same idea that he's referring to. That we give that defense, that answer for the hope that we have, the hope of God, the hope of the gospel, and that is taking their thoughts captive. Your thought, your, your argument is of no use because we have a good answer for that and anybody can find it on the internet. <laughs> we hopefully get it from a Christian. But I think also, and this is where the, the division comes about, whether it's completely about the universal truth or about, you know, the universal truth is like a secondary idea that he's using to show them what's going, what they need to do. But the universal truth is that we need to take the thought of every person, including the believer, captive for God and make it useful for his kingdom in this unending war. Well, it will end when Christ returns. All the thoughts of every person needs to be captured by the word of God, submitted, put in submission to the word of God, transformed by the word of God. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Now, everybody's thoughts need to be brought captive to God for his kingdom, for his glory. He will do it at the judgment, but we should be doing it now. And the tool which God has given us to be able to do that is, of course, the word of God. Ralph Waldo Emerson puts it succinctly. And we've used this phrase before. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. In Christian terms, what is our destiny? What is our desire? We want to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That enjoying him forever is the end that we desire. And as another secular thinker said, you know, begin with the end in mind and work back. If I want to spend eternity with God, my desire is to enjoy him forever, to glorify him forever, then I must have a godly character. If I want to have a godly character, it requires that my habits be godly. If I want my habits to be godly, the actions in which those habits are formed need to be godly. If I want my habits to be godly, or my actions to be godly, then my thinking, which gives birth to my actions, has to be godly. And if I want my thinking to be godly, then I need to take captive all of my thoughts, submit them under the word of God, and make sure they are right, make sure they are correct. Our personal thoughts must be what is right before God, which requires us, by the way, to know his revealed will, the scriptures. And that should be what we dwell upon. 
Speaking of the godly, Psalm 1 says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but you know, if we are, our thoughts are occupied by how angry we are with a person or how bitter and jealous we are of their success or um, you know, thoughts of immorality, and that's what we're thinking about. What, what we're saying here is we need to take that captive and replace those thoughts. And, but we'll get to that in a minute by dwelling on and meditating upon the Word of God. Why we need to do this is very clear in Scripture. We read Genesis 6 earlier, before the flood. Every thought and inclination of man's heart is sinful. Well, after the flood, all the wicked people were destroyed and were all perfect. No, we read chapter 8 of Genesis for that reason this morning. The Lord promised in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. Genesis 8:21. Our hearts are evil by nature, evil by practice, even from our youth. That's why we need to actually and actively capture our thoughts. They are prone to evil. We want them to be prone to good. We want to do good by capturing those thoughts and making them submit to the good of the word of the Lord. Our thoughts are rebellious. Our tendencies are rebellious against God. And that needs to be our purpose to control them and transform them. Now, there's an interesting example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, or chapter 15, rather. Deuteronomy 15, verse 9 said, take care lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year is releasing, the year of, uh, the seventh year is nearing, the year of release is near. What is he talking about? Well, you know, if your neighbor was in debt and needed money, he could sell himself to be your worker, slave, your worker for a time. But every seven years, there would be forgiveness of their debt. So you say, well, I'm not going to loan him money and not because I have to forgive it, you know, in three months, and I don't get anything out of it. So if that unworthy thought would come in your eye and you look grudgingly on your poor neighbor and give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, you will be guilty of sin. Deuteronomy 15. Right. Now, the one I, the, what I want you to think about is the unworthy thought in your ha- heart leads to an action of being guilty of sin. We talked about that on Wednesday Bible study a while back, talking about anger. Well, if I'm angry with him, but I can control my anger, and it doesn't escape from me into action, then I'm okay. And my thought, my statement was, if you're angry with somebody, you're bitter, you're resentful, you hate them, you despise them, whatever the sin may be, you make up accusations against them to justify it, slander. You know, but you only keep it in your heart and you never share it. I've wronged no one. I've just sinned before God a little bit. But who can keep all of that in their heart? I mean, doesn't it always work out in our interactions with the person that we hate, that we despise, that we're bitter, resentful, jealous of? And that's what he's talking about here. You you harbor that thought in your heart, and then you don't want to give to them. 
and you don't do what you should do. He called on them to take care of each other. I think that one was about loaning money, but buying them as a slave as well. And you think about, oh, the year, you know, the year of release, the year of the end of this was too soon, so it's not worth it. He says that'll be sin. Jesus explained it this way, that you make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or you make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad. The tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he's saying this to the leaders who were accusing him, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, and the word abundance there I think is better translated overflow because it has to do with the superabundance beyond what the vessel can contain. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Matthew 12, 33 through 35. And so whatever we have filled our heart with does come out. Sometimes it's not in speech and words, but in other actions, in the way we treat people. What we meditate in our hearts is ultimately what's going to come out of our words in our words and in our actions. We spent quite a bit of time talking about this on Wednesday night, and I think I recommended John Flavel's book, A Treatise on Keeping the Heart. He has a lot of good stuff to say in that. Uh, we talked about the anger, bitterness example. We need to capture those thoughts, which are not in keeping with God's glory, which are not good for leading us to enjoying God forever. We need to capture them and replace them with righteous thoughts. We need to correct them, reform them. Now, they used to have reform schools for delinquent kids. Now they have warehousing where they learn better crimes and hatred for the world and for God and for society. But we need to reform those thoughts by capturing them first and then forcing them to do right. Let's follow out the Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. We need to take those thoughts we've captured and purge them and replace them by right thoughts. And a lot of times it requires the opposite thoughts. When we did Jerry Bridges' book on the pursuit of holiness, he talked about, you know, if you're bitter with somebody at work because they've gotten all the breaks, they've gotten promoted, and they don't deserve it, and they just use people, and that's how they got ahead of you. Now, how do you fix that? Well, it may all be right. And even if it is right, but it's probably at least partially a lie that we've made up to justify our failure. How do we fix that? He, his suggestion was you pray for the good of that person. You pray for their success. You pray for their joy and their position so that you can get rid of the sinful thoughts of the jealousy and the bitterness and the anger. You replace them with the opposite good. Just as the thief was told to steal no four, get it more, work with his hands and so that he has something to give away. You know, it's the opposite of taking what you did earn is giving away what you did earn. You know, we can replace those with the opposite idea, with the opposite virtue for the vice that we need to correct and purify our thinking and think about the commendable things, the excellent things, the good things, rather than the bad. And the same works for thoughts of immorality. You know, Paul told Timothy to think of younger women as sisters. You know, we can clarify our thinking by changing the way we think about things. When we're tempted to think anger, 
bitterness, resentfulness, you know, woe is me, pity, self-pity party, whatever it may be, we can think of other things. It could always be worse, is something I like to say, but you know, there are better things that we should be occupying our minds with. Take those thoughts captive, force them to do to be changed, to be transformed by the power of God, by the power of his spirit, and by the power of the word. Every single thought of every person must be captured for God. I think that's the purpose Paul has here. And this is what we desi- this is what God desires concerning all of creation, that it glorify him, submit to him in everything he has commanded. The judgment we read in Ephesians 5 is coming upon us because men do not control their sinful thought life and their sinful thought life works out in their sinful desires and sinful actions. And he gives the list there. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. But most especially, this is what God desires of his children, that we control our thoughts, take them captive, have, you know, crush the bad ones and replace them with good ones, that we think about the good things. Uh, I've met people every day at the end of the day, their life is, their time is a rehashment of all the wrongs that were done to them, all the bad things that happened to them. Which is why I loved listening to Paul Harvey at the end of the day when I was a kid, because he would find something worthy of praise and think on that. God wants us also, though, to be obedient to him. Remember the end of our verse. To take every thought captive to obey Christ. To obey Christ. That's what God wants from creation, and that's what God wants from his children. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. If someone rejects the observe the obedience to him, they don't want it, they Say, oh, no, I, you know, I'm under grace. I can do what I want. I'm not under law. And they reject him as their Lord. If you love me, keep my commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. If we're not trying to be obedient to Christ, if that's not our desire if we don't hate our sin and loathe it and want to crush and destroy it and replace it with righteousness, then we really have to ask ourselves, do I know Christ? It's that serious a matter of what God wants. Crush those thoughts and bring them into submission to Christ and his word. Because Christ is Lord. To the people of Israel, God said, the words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall sign, bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be with you as frontlets on your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. You know, knowing God's command learning them, memorizing them, keeping them always before us is the basics of what it means to be a child of God so that we can obey them. 
How do we take them captive? I've way gone over time and it's going to be lunchtime before we finish. So we'll just skip too much of this. We're talking about it Wednesdays at the moment, so for those of you who are able to be there, first of all, we need to submit our judgment of what's right and wrong to God's Word. You know, not to our emotions, not to our desires, not to what some popular preacher or teacher said that we like the teaching of, but to the Word. We can't take them captive to nothing. We take them captive to God, to his word, and replacing the wrong thoughts with the good right thoughts. And whatever is good and righteous and holy and noble, all of those things. And the last one I want you to think about is a verse we all probably have memorized, Philippians 6 and 4, 6, and 7. Now don't be anxious about anything, but by everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests, your needs be known to God. It doesn't have to do with just material wants, but the spiritual things that we need, the spiritual desire. You know, God, I am wrestling with this bitterness or this anger or this jealousy or this immorality. And <clears throat> you know, we can make that request known to him instead of being worrying about it, anxious about it, and I'm you know, beating ourselves up and being angry about it or blaming others for it or blaming God for not helping us, make those requests known to God. And he says, he does not say, and God will fix it all for you. <laughs> now, the name and claimants are wrong. What he says, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, and by the way, minds is our word. You know, how do we guard our minds? by turning it over to God, by bringing our needs, our wants, our lacks, our sin to him. He will give us peace, give us wisdom as we try to force the submission of our thoughts to him. And so we need to take every thought captive. Probably the biggest part of pastor's counseling is in helping people get from what they're dwelling upon that's causing their problem to what they should dwell on and what they should be trying to do and get them to transform their, transform their life. It is not something you let go and let God. We need to take those thoughts captive. We need to replace them with holy and righteous thoughts and actions and life. Habits are character. Uh, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the tools to do and the tools to judge our thoughts so that we can take them properly captive and try to transform them into you. We know, Lord, that it is hard to understand first what's wrong, why are we doing what we do, what thoughts, what meditations have led us there, what we should be thinking and meditating upon, what we should be trying to do in our lives, what actions we should stop and what actions we should take. And we pray, Lord, that as we think about that, that when we think about taking our thoughts captive, we don't just think about the war against sinful teachers and wrong thinking and our society and all of its religions and all of its philosophies and all of its politics, but that we also think about, Lord, our own heart taking our own thoughts captive. We don't just destroy the strongholds of Satan, 
and the world, but the strongholds within ourselves, which we've set up to protect us from you. Help us, Lord, to submit to you in everything and to submit to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.